Hi, I'm Cardiff Garcia, and this is The New Bazaar. Coming up on today's show... One of the biggest challenges for crypto and for blockchain is insufficient ability to deal with people-generated chaos rather than mathematically elegant solutions. Stacey Marie Ishmael explains crypto to me so that you can explain it to your friends or at least forward them this podcast. (laughs) I am skipping the usual introduction essay to the show, and I'm just going to go straight to the introduction of my friend, Stacey Marie Ishmael, our guest today. Hello, Stacey. I can't Uh, believe we're finally doing this. I know. Uh, Let's start by telling people who you are. Sure. I'm Stacey Marie Ishmael. I am here partly because I'm Cardiff's friend, but partly because I cover cryptocurrencies for Bloomberg News. Yes. You run a team and you're building a team. Built a team. Have built a team that covers crypto. Yes. And we should disclose to the audience also that you and I are not just like professional journalism econ finance dork friends. We're like real person friends. Yes. Right. We like do real, real people world. things together. We yes. go on walks. We've go we go to plays, you know. Well in the before times. But yes. yes. But I don't I don't invite most of my friends to this show because this show is not about the NBA or MMA and that's what it would have to be if I invited any of my other friends. We're here to talk about crypto, which is what you've been doing for the last what, six, six months? months? Okay. Wow. And in your past professional lives, you have covered financial markets, Mm -hmm. including during the financial crisis of 2008-2009. You've overseen a team of reporters covering emerging markets. You've built apps. You've worked for tech teams. Mm -hmm. Before you joined Bloomberg, you were the editor at the Texas Tribune, where you covered, amongst many other things, like the deep freeze in Texas, which was like this horrible, like tragic event. So my first question is, where does crypto rank on like that roster of things <laughs> that you've covered in the past? Like what attracted you to covering crypto now specifically? I sometimes feel like if I'm interested in something, it's a bad sign for the thing that I'm interested in. Oh, no. <laughs> I'm like a counter cyclical goodness indicator. <laughs> I'm like, oh, structured finance, that seems fun. And then that blew it up It all the world. collapses <laughs> so... in 2008, right. So you think so... like crypto is peaking now because you well, got in the game? I don't know. So I joined on the 7th. I started my job on the 7th of September, which was the same day that El Salvador legalized Bitcoin as legal tender. Mm-hmm. And then a couple of weeks later, China banned all crypto in the country. And then we had both an all-time high and sort of record lows. And now we have a war between or instigated by Russia and Ukraine, of which crypto is kind of a major part. And I'm sort of there like... And a very controversial part. A very controversial part. And so, you know... I feel a little bit bad about how much news is happening in this asset class because it often comes at sort of tremendous personal cost to a lot of people involved. Yeah. And in terms of how you went about just learning about crypto to the point now where you are sort of fluent in the language of crypto, you can build a team, staff a team that knows how to report on crypto. I'm curious about this because It can be quite foreboding Mm -hmm. to learn about, especially if you don't directly invest in crypto. So what do you tell people who are just curious about crypto? How do you go about just understanding it? I think there are different stories in crypto, and I try to tell people to start from whichever element of that story they are most interested in. So if they come from a 
creative or an art or a gaming background, then, you know, look into what people are talking about when they talk about non-fungible tokens. If they are more into mathematics or engineering or computer science, then I'm like, hey, you know, check out smart contracts or Ethereum or the idea of an infinitely distributed number of copies of something with the goal of having that be relatively resilient to hacking or spamming. Like the technical side of things. The technical side of things. If they're interested in culture and lifestyle, then I tell them, we'll talk about non-fungible tokens of apes that sell for (laughs) $750,000. And the fact that that is really about entry into a certain kind of country club or social club and the dynamics that go with that. Or the culture of Bitcoin, which is very different and really has attracted a lot of folks who would self-identify as libertarian or who have a lot of crossover with the sort of folks who think that an EMP might take out all the world's power. You know, I think you don't have to start from a place of this is about money or this is about really complicated mathematical problems. Both of those things are true, but they are only slices of the overall story. I think that's great advice in general, by the way. Start with the stuff that you gravitate towards that you're really interested in, and that can be like your passageway into yes. you the will, wider Yes, you will find universe, right? language that you already know and understand and that resonates with you, and that can make the learning curve feel a little bit less steep. I have to imagine that for you, it was like the economics or the finance implications of crypto that first attracted you to it because that's what you'd covered so much in the past. Uh, Am I right about that or were there other things? I would say there was that, but there was also the fact that I am a gigantic nerd, which you are aware (laughs) of. And the same things that attracted me to wanting to understand the what goes into a commercial mortgage-backed security or a credit default swap, where it's a lot of what I would call obfuscation through complexity, which is basically the idea that, oh, this thing is super complicated. It must be valuable. (laughs) And that a lot of crypto is You just don't understand it. Right. Like, well, if you'd read the prospectus, you would know, (laughs) right? There's, There's a phrase you hear a lot in crypto, which is do your own research. And it's sometimes used very offensively or insultingly, right? Which is the idea that like, well, if you'd read as much as me, you would think this is just as cool as I do. And I take that to be a personal challenge where, (laughs) you know, if somebody's trying to like... Damn right, I will do my research (laughs) then. Exactly. I'm like, oh, did you say do the reading? Bring it on. (laughs) And so I really appreciated that a lot of this actually can feel very technical and can feel very intimidating, but I am not the kind of person who's intimidated by that. You like the challenge. You like to get after it. Absolutely. But I mean, I think this also raises another interesting question, which is think of all the different ways that people can choose to learn about crypto. Like It has become this very wide, very kind of diverse universe of things. Yep. It didn't really start out that way, right? Like originally... We were just talking about one one thing. Bitcoin, really, right? And that was intended to be a currency of sorts, a way to a store transfer of value. a store of value. Indeed. Yeah, a way to transfer a store of value without needing a middleman like a bank or a government to authenticate it or to verify it, right? It seems to have like grown and expanded so much that it sort of raises the question of like, well, what exactly are we talking about when we're talking about crypto? It seems more like a suite of technologies rather than one unified thing, right? I would agree with that. And I would add to what you just described that Bitcoin came out of a rejection of financial institutions, right? The original, the white paper, the thing, one of the first things I read was 
partly in response to the collapse of trust among financial institutions, the, co- the collapse of financial institutions in the aftermath of the financial crisis. And so a central question was, how do you design a system in which you can't necessarily know or trust or you don't necessarily want to know or trust the other participants in that ecosystem, which, you know, sort of explains the libertarian worldview that various of these folks still have. But since then, since, you know, the origin of Bitcoin, since that white paper, what has happened is you've had a lot of people asking different kinds of questions, like, what do you build on top of a trustless ecosystem? Or what do you do if you wanted to provide some of the same kinds of services that traditional banks provide, but you don't want to get those services from a bank? Or what do you do if you want to allow a larger number of people to directly benefit from their labor or their creativity or their inputs into a system, right? Like, how do you help more people sort of be in control of their creative and financial destiny at once, which is, I think, one of the more interesting questions posed by some of these folks. Has it become more an attempt to help people collaborate who otherwise would not have been brought together in the absence of these technologies? Is that sort of what they're aiming for? you know, money has an interesting way of bringing people together, (laughs) whether that is the goal or not. And it has been true that for a couple of years, the returns on investing in different types of crypto assets, while not evenly distributed (laughs) and certainly prone to volatility and risk, have created entirely new classes of millionaires and billionaires. And I think that, you know, there's certainly the equivalent of a gold rush where right now this is an ecosystem that seems new, interesting, shiny, has very high valuations and the associated regulatory attention that goes along with that. And people see it as an opportunity to either build something completely from scratch or try ideas from other parts of the financial services ecosystem or media or entertainment and say that, you know, we're going we're gonna to layer this on top of the blockchain and then they raise $100 million for that. Yeah. You know, let's talk about Bitcoin and the other cryptocurrency specifically that came in Bitcoin's aftermath because there's a recent Bloomberg article uh, that you might have edited yourself uh, that said that said that a lot of investors may soon have to confront the possibility, not the certainty, but the possibility that these currencies have been in a bubble for the last few years because we have seen a very recent but very steep decline in the value of these currencies. And I just go back to the history of this all. When we talk about currencies, at least in economic terms, we're talking about a store of value, a medium of exchange. And if you just take those two properties, well, as a store of value, these currencies have actually been quite volatile through the years, but especially in recent years. So focusing on that, I recently saw a little uh, a little note from JP Morgan <laughs> that said that Bitcoin in particular now is highly correlated with highly volatile stocks tech in stocks the stock especially. market. With tech stocks. Mm-hmm. Okay. And it seems like that would go against the original purpose of a currency like this, which is supposed to be uncorrelated with all the other things that are happening, okay, that it is supposed to hopefully like maintain some kind of stability. Or if you're an investor, it would at least like go up over time dependably. And it doesn't seem to be fulfilling that role 
And I'm just kind of curious to know if that has like upended people's understanding of what cryptocurrencies are supposed to be. The first thing I'd say is that we're only 13 years into this, whereas we're hundreds of years into understanding gold. <laughs> yeah. And thousands, I think, with uh, well, gold, indeed. right? Indeed. <laughs> I mean, certainly. Um, or inflation or even like bonds, right? And not to go all like finance report, it's too soon to tell, <laughs> but it's a little bit <laughs> it soon to tell. It might be too tell. soon to tell. I mean, um, so that that's the first thing I'd say. The second thing that I would say is because of all the money that has been sloshing into crypto broadly as an asset class, whether Bitcoin or blockchain or investing, whatever, we end up with a version of what we also saw during the financial crisis that we both covered, which is suddenly everything becomes correlated because it's just like money chasing vol or risk or arbitrage opportunities or whatever those things might be. And so there was, I have this something that I call like my grand unified theory, which covers crypto, meme stocks, Wall Street bets, video games, sports betting. Oh, my God. I can't wait for this. Online betting, which is that all of these asset classes are correlated not necessarily because they relate to each other as an ecosystem, but because they appeal to the same kinds of people. And they appeal to people who think of themselves as a little bit outside the norm, have discretionary or speculative income in small or large amounts, often have very specialist forms of expertise in something or another, and, you know, are sort of attracted to the idea of applying that expertise to other complex things that might be outside of that domain and are aggressively marketed at men. And it doesn't mean that men are the only people kind of in this ecosystem. But if you look at, you know, if you think about the most recent Super Bowl, which was in some cases described as the Super Bowl of crypto. Because of all the crypto commercials. Because of all the crypto commercials, it's just like a bunch of like swaggering dudes <laughs> being like, do you too want to be a swaggering dude by Bitcoin? And I'm kind of fascinated about that interplay and that dynamic. And what it's meant is when you see money pouring into and out of one of the other things that I've just named there, you also tend to see like similar correlations in in crypto. And right now, you know, yes, we're 13 years in. Yes, we're talking, depending on the day, a two and a half to three trillion dollar overall market capitalization. That's still relatively small. And that liquidity is not evenly distributed, right? Like Bitcoin and Ether are the two two of the biggest tokens are way more liquid than something like a Dogecoin or a Shiba Inu. And so small numbers of highly influential people making a comment on Twitter can meaningfully drive movements in and out of these things in the same way that Elon Musk making a comment on Twitter can meaningfully drive Tesla. Well, often, by the way, it's Elon Musk also making the comment that about crypto. That's, it's like the same person in both yep. examples. And yeah. he very much fits into that category. Yeah. And, and on this point of... Bitcoin becoming more correlated with tech stocks or other volatile parts of the stock market. What's also interesting to me is that when it gets to the point where it's not just some of these more kind of fringy or innovator types that are interested mm -hmm. in crypto. It's mainstreaming. Or, it's, it's the mainstreaming of it. We're like Wall Street is now involved. Yes. There's analyst notes being put out Correct. on what's going to happen in crypto. At that point, it seems like it would cease to have its sort of renegade 
reputation or it would dent its renegade reputation. And now it's going to be more correlated with other kinds of investments because even though it started as something rebellious and retail and, and interesting and retail folks. Yeah. It, it's sort of like everything that starts that way can actually become commoditized or commercialized at least. Right. Yeah. Um, I think by the time you have multiple people fighting to launch an ETF that is Bitcoin related, you're going you're gonna to see some sort of financial mainstreaming. And this has certainly been an interesting tension because some of the bigger players actively want more regulation, predictability, stability, because they will make their money that way. Whereas some of the less incumbent, smaller, more radical, however you want to group them, folks are really trying to hold on to the idea that, you know, Going mainstream, having a Super Bowl commercial is really antithetical to the idea of like, we're outside the norm, right? We are we are not like Goldman Sachs. We are not like a JP Morgan. We are not like the dollar. And I think that that is a sort of at the heart of a lot of the more interesting debates and conversations that are happening right now. Yeah, you're like the Matt Damon of all the born you know, the born <laughs> genre, right? Like mainstream thrillers now. You're not the Matt Damon of like Goodwill Hunting, which right. at the time was like this interesting, quirky, avant-garde guy, right? Yeah, exactly. Uh, sorry, but Matt Damon's on your like Super Bowl commercial, you know? You're not this obscure band, right? Right. Yeah. And, and I think certainly within crypto, there's some obscure stuff. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> right? I mean, but that's what happens, you know, right? Like the, some parts of it go mainstream definitely. and now the obscure stuff gets pushed into like darker corners. What should we be looking for there? I'm not sure I want to recommend them. <laughs> no, no, not recommending. <laughs> not to buy. <laughs> Just mean to pay attention to, um, to learn think, about. You know, I think one of the more interesting, it's it's obscure because it's very technical, but it's where there's some fascinating stuff happening is the idea of what's called a smart contract, which is imagine if I were to use a sort of a an example that's very on my mind right now because rent in New York is very high. It's horrifying. <laughs> um, you know, so you, you're trying to find an apartment or you're trying to buy a house or whatever your financial mechanisms allow. And a tremendous part of that process is just pure paperwork, right? It's like exchanging confirmations that you do have as much money as you say you have and that you will have the income that you say you have and you do work for this particular employer and you have 19,000 recommendations so the co-op board can judge whether you are like a good person or whatever. Yeah, all the paperwork to get approved to move into an apartment that's basically meant to verify that you can in fact do afford, a, do a thing. afford to pay the rent in that right? apartment. Right, so you have sure. like that element of paperwork. And then you also have you know, okay, if you're renting, maybe in two years, you know your rent is going to go up or whatever. And when that comes around, it's like another round of emails with your landlord or landlady. And if you think of a smart contract as something that can take all of those inputs and make them almost like a, a piece of software, where instead of having 50 different discrete things that you have to think about, you have one thing that contains all of those and that can react intelligently to them. So like, over the course of that contract, let's say something happens and you change jobs, what will often happen is you have to start that over from scratch. You're like, hello, my bank. Yes. <laughs> Here's new information that they then have to input in an idealized right, Like my world. paycheck's now coming from a different company. Exactly. Yeah. Please don't nuke me from, from <laughs> orbit. In an idealized world of smart contracts, elements of your identity would be feeding into this thing that you have to do a lot less manual labor around. 
So on the one hand, I'm like, whoa, that's interesting, fascinating, convenient. On the other, I'm like, I don't know if I like the idea of elements of my identity or things I don't necessarily have control over automatically triggering certain kinds of conditions, right? And that for me is what I find sometimes a little bit horrifying about the idea of the blockchain. And a blockchain is basically infinite notebooks. It's like you, instead of we have show notes and those show notes are only available in like one Cardiff's notebook with his right. particularly idiosyncratic handwriting. <laughs> like the show notes for this episode, <laughs> right, right. Where it's like, I'll share with you and be like, it's just the two of us that right. can see it, right? Yeah, exactly. And, you know, you could change them and I might I might not know that you're changing them. It's like you ever, but a blockchain is basically every time you write those notes, they're replicated as many times as there are participants in that blockchain. Everybody on this and digital ledger, as the blockchain is called, can right. see it. That's can part of the it. initial appeal, right. right? So it's like, wow, you have amazing transparency. You have accountability. No one person can suddenly change something. And then there are people who are like, whoa, we should tie our passports to the blockchain. I'm like, sure. But what if I want to change my gender identity? Right. I can't in in because according to the blockchain, like it's fixed, it's immutable. It's an Nobody algorithm, can it. right? right? It's not flexible. It's not flexible. Um, or what if I need to disappear from the blockchain <laughs> for whatever? I'm, what if I'm hiding from my government? Right. What if I'm a person under threat? And so, you know, I think that sometimes folks who are big boosters of crypto will say things like, you know, we are censorship resistant or this is really good for civil rights or this is really good for privacy. And I asked them, well, there are elements of this that are good for civil rights and that are good for privacy. And there are elements of this that are absolutely not. And the inflexibility seems like it would pose a particular challenge. Yes. And I don't know enough about the technical side to know if like an algorithm itself can be designed to be flexible, right? Like mm-hmm. I'm, I'm way out of my depth here. But I worry about this, especially in the con- uh, in terms of the concept of trust, which you brought up a couple of times now. And when you're talking about smart contracts or even when you're talking about cryptocurrencies, these algorithms that govern how they work seem like they would be especially problematic if that inflexibility is also interacting with a relationship where there is some degree of trust. Right. Okay. <laughs> and I, I was a fun example of this recently. Well, let me let me just and let me, yeah, I want to hear the example in a second, but I want to go back first to your earlier example of like the relationship between a potential renter and a landlord. That's a very low trust relationship, <laughs> right? You don't know each other. You're sort of wondering if you're trying to screw each other over. Mm-hmm. I can understand the appeal of something like an algorithm or a smart contract to govern that kind of a relationship. But what about other kinds of relationships where, like, there is a lot of trust in the real world, right? And then you have this inflexible thing that can make it hard to interact with, like, a colleague or a future business partner with whom you have a good relationship. And because relationships are messy and they're supposed to evolve over time, that's a normal thing. Well, if now the relationship is being governed by, like, a very strict contract, you now run into some barriers in terms of just, like, advancing your own, like, relationship, deepening it, arriving at decisions that are now inflexibly governed by a contract as opposed to the normal, messy, yes, but also often divine, glorious process of, like, interacting with a business partner or a friend and arriving at a solution to whatever your problem is the normal way. Well, the first thing that I would say is while things like smart contracts, and they can be algorithmic or otherwise, are often associated with blockchain technology, they don't have to be, right? And 
everything you're describing there is sort of true right now of things like um, remote proctoring technology, where you are doing an exam and some algorithm is trying to determine if you're cheating and you have like no appeal or you're applying for a job and some algorithm is trying to determine, like, are you a qualified candidate? And then it just is like, nope, <laughs> rejected. And you have and again, you have no appeal. Or in the extreme case of some tech companies, it's determining your salary or your pay rate or whether you get a day off or whatever that thing is. Where I am, I think at odds with some of the other folks who talk about crypto, discuss crypto is... They want to take all of those things, even with those challenges, and layer them on top of a blockchain that introduces additional challenges. Because at least with that software, those algorithms, if you if they are if they don't exist in a crypto context, there is by definition more flexibility. Mm-hmm. It might be hard to appeal, it might be hard to change, but it's possible. If you take that inflexibility and then you put it on something that's designed to be, this is the truth, this is the canon, to me, that's like a compounding problem rather than necessarily a solution to one. And what was the example that you were about to share? It One of the fun things about crypto is that so much of it is also user experience. And that's why I say, like, I think that there are a lot more people who are interested in, like, design and product that should get interested here. Um, I want to talk a little bit about expensive NFTs. So an NFT or a non-fungible token is a digital representation of some kind of asset on the other end. Yes. Can I actually give an example real quick yeah. of this? Because like, uh, this is one area of crypto where I don't own any of these things, but, like do I've, I. but I've done reporting on them before. So the one I'm kind of familiar with is related to basketball. Okay, so. Of there's, I guess it's an exchange called NBA Top Shot. It's affiliated with the NBA and with this other company that they've partnered with. And basically what you can do there is you can buy these NFTs that are affiliated with video clips of basketball plays. So if there's this awesome basketball play, you can go on the site and you can buy an NFT of that play. But I want to be clear, it's not like by buying a non-fungible token you are buying ownership of the basketball clip. Anybody can still see the clip. Anybody can even go on YouTube, not even on Top Shot to see the clip. But for example, this exchange, Top Shot, might say there's only 40 NFTs that are affiliated with this clip and you can buy one of them. So there is there is some scarcity there, right? And then you can trade that NFT kind of like with basketball cards, like in the physical space, exactly. right? That kind of thing. Okay. So, and this applies also like in the art world, like you can buy an NFT that's affiliated with either a, a painting that's real or a digital painting. Or right? just an illustration. Or, or just an illustration, anything. Or something really weird. <laughs> right. But you're a song, yeah. right? But you own not that thing, you own... The representation of that. Yeah, like a digital receipt of that thing. Exactly. And there can be more than one of those, but the one you own cannot be duplicated anywhere else. It's yours, and that is what gives it its value, is that you can say, this one's mine. It's like a digital receipt, but it's also like a print or an autograph or other things that we collect, Right. Where it's like other people also have a version of this print. There's like 250 of these prints. I have one of 250. It still feels special to me. Or a baseball card. Or a baseball card. There might be 40 versions of the same baseball card. Still rare, by the way. There's still scarcity there. Right. Okay. Um, Digital scarcity is a weird concept because technically it's infinitely reproducible. But I think digital authenticity 
can be rare. Okay. Right? Like the number of ones that the NBA is like, these are our verified ones. Even if there's a million unverified ones out there, that is that appeals to folks. Yes. So in the world of NFTs, um, that's this has been a corner of the market where there has been tremendous attention because there's been tremendous money. You know, things selling for like $75 million, $250,000. Yeah. And... I'm not going to talk about the economics of that for this example. What I'm going to talk about is the risk of buying and selling. To buy or sell an NFT, you have to list it on an exchange. And you could think about those exchanges as like an eBay where you're like, I own this. I want to sell it to somebody else. There's a secondary market. Great. What happened with the interplay between like non-flexible contracts and people and their messiness is folks were, they let's say you had like an auction And at some point in that auction, you were like, I've changed my mind. I don't want anybody to try to buy this from me. I'm just going to hide it. You know, so it's almost like you didn't physically delist the thing from auction, but you took it off the stage. Right. You did the digital equivalent of taking it off the stage. But somebody who was really smart, somebody who was paying attention, knew that that thing was still in the room. And it's almost like they eBay sniped you. So the thing that you thought was no longer available for somebody to buy, somebody else was like, ha I too read code. And I know that you just hid it and you didn't delete it and I'm going to get it. And that sounds like really weird and edge casey and obscure, but people lost so much money because they only hid the thing and they thought that was equivalent to making it not possible for somebody else to buy because the contract at the other end was like, nope, technically I can still see it. I don't know anything about your intentions here. All I know is this is still technically available. And if somebody else wants to buy it, I'm going to sell it to them. And the reason that was a problem is because the folks who hit it often hit it at a point where it was listed for a very small amount of money. They were like, eh, whatever. I have had this thing for a long time. It's fine. Um, But it was actually valued in their minds at like, you know, 50 times whatever they had originally listed it for. And like when I first encountered this example, I was like, first of all, this is complicated. (laughs) Second of all, it suggests that, as with many things, we're not dealing with a mathematical problem or an engineering problem or only a mathematical problem or an engineering problem. We're actually dealing with the fact that people are chaotic. And because people are chaotic, anything that you're building has to be able to deal with chaos. And I kind of feel like One of the biggest challenges for crypto and for blockchain is insufficient ability to deal with people-generated chaos rather than mathematically elegant solutions. Because then you have to, like, hack human nature as opposed to to solving a technological problem. Exactly. Right? And, like, you know, a lot of people in crypto are very, very good at solving technological problems. Like, the word crypto comes from cryptography um, or it was inspired by cryptography because the way that you invent a Bitcoin, like a Bitcoin comes from somebody being the first and the fastest to solve a particular mathematical problem. And so, like, that solution equals one Bitcoin. And so you have all these people who are, like, great at solving mathematical problems, but then they're like, huh, People are chaotic and trustless. Yeah. What and do I how do does here? this apply societally? Mm-hmm. Uh, can I tell you a little secret? Sure. Okay. Before we chatted, I looked up the etymology of the word crypt. <laughs> okay. Uh, apparently, it comes from two different Greek words. One means hidden and mm-hmm. the other means vault. Okay. But I was thinking of it in the context of just trying to understand something that is labeled crypto, which, you know, right. it, it brings up the idea of something being cryptic. It brings up 
Tales from the Crypt. I don't know. Like, this is not a word that suggests... Accessibility, inclusivity, come on over, it's yeah. the water's fine. Forthright transparency <laughs> or anything of that nature. And I don't know if it's an accurate representation of what crypto actually is, or maybe it was originally, and now it's not, right? But it brings to mind kind of what you just said, which is that it's a brilliant solution and it's not yet clear what specific problems it's meant to solve. That's yeah, sort of I the, think that's that's a cliched thing that's been said about crypto for years. But just because something's cliched doesn't mean it's untrue. Yeah. What do you think about that? Well, I want to go back to what you said about, you know, whether this thing is a store of value. And if I take the perspective, which I often try to do, of somebody who really believes in, say, Bitcoin, their fundamental argument is... There is a hard upper limit on the total number of Bitcoins that will ever exist in circulation. And the majority of Bitcoins that will ever exist in circulation have already been invented. Those computer problems, those mathematical problems have already been solved. And so from, you know, totally 101 economic theory, that would suggest that if you continue to have people wanting Bitcoin and you have a constrained supply, the price can only ever go up. Mm. <laughs> Right. Like that's kind of at the very core of some of the arguments about Bitcoin. And it also lends itself to the argument that those folks often make that Bitcoin is inherently inflation resistant. And that is sometimes why you will hear people talk about Bitcoin as digital gold, because they're trying to draw the analogy between the use of gold as a historical inflation hedge that when currencies, other types of currency are losing value because inflation is rising, Gold is seen as a safe haven, inflation-resistant asset. That has not always held up for Bitcoin as compared to either the total performance of gold or as it relates to, say, the U.S. dollar. But it's also been a long time since the U.S. has dealt with inflation. That's true. <laughs> so, you know, when when it comes back to, like, is it too soon to tell? I'm like, yes, for two reasons. One, because it's still so early in the history of everything to do with this asset class, but two, because I feel like we've just dealt with 25 straight years of unprecedented economic and financial whatever, right? Like sort of every generation has now experienced be like, oh, financial crisis. Oh, here's a war. <laughs> you know, here's like something that you could not imagine would experience. Here is wild technological disruption and innovation in a way that we still haven't figured out how to necessarily measure in GDP. Um, and that's been what crypto has existed alongside. On this point of the expectation that crypto will go up and up and up, and as it applies to not just Bitcoin, but to other cryptocurrencies and now NFTs and so forth, there's something about describing a financial bubble that I can't tell if it applies in the case of crypto. And this requires a little bit of a windup, okay? <laughs> um, so when we think of like a classic financial bubble in something, right, in a stock or the whole stock market or in Beanie Babies or whatever, we usually sort of think about it as people are investing in this mainly on the expectation that other people will also invest in it and they'll keep investing in it and therefore it'll keep going up, right? And so the thinking there is that it is divorced from 
fundamentals. Something called the fundamentals, which in the case of like the stock market or a stock, you usually think about the fundamentals as, well, this is a company and it makes things. And if it keeps getting better at making things, it'll be a profitable company. And so if I invest in it now, the fundamentals are sound because it's going to be a profitable company. So later when I need to sell my stock in this company, the amount of money that I put in will be higher, Mm -hmm. right? Because the way we usually think about a financial bubble is that something that we consider to be an investment has undertaken these properties of like, it's just going up and up and I'm expecting everybody else to keep buying. Like house prices in 2007. Exactly, right? That's That's a great example, okay? But it's because we think of these things as investments primarily or investment goods, whatever you want to call it. The idea that you're putting money in on the expectation that you're going to take more money out later. You're sending yourself money in the future, basically, right? With crypto and also in some cases with like these Reddit groups that get together to pump up a stock, right? And and with Robinhood where they have quote unquote gamified, gamified the stock market, there's an element of all this that feels like more of a consumption good. Yeah. Or a combination of the two things where the enjoyment of the thing you're doing is what you get out of it. In the way that like unified theory. Yeah, well it's like it's like I think about it this way. When I buy tickets to like a Broadway show or a baseball game or something, I don't expect to like get the money back later. Like I'm paying to enjoy the thing. Yep. And now it seems like maybe with crypto, parts of the stock market, all these groups getting together to like pump up stocks. Yes, they obviously want to make money. Nobody goes into something wanting to lose money. But part of what they're actually paying for is the enjoyment of being part of the community. And this seems easy to dismiss, except that I spoke to a lot of people who were doing like those basketball NFTs. And a lot of them, actually, I think every single one of them said that actually like, yes, they want to make money but they won't really care that much if they lose a bunch of money too, right? Which I think everybody should just understand about it before they're getting involved in it. But what I mean is it's hard to sort of gauge whether something is in a financial bubble if it has this element of a consumption good that's also involved. I would completely agree, and I would note that those folks are using money that they can afford to lose. Yes, that's a very (laughs) crucial observation, right? So let's just, like, put that there and note it. Um... I very, very much agree that you cannot, in on any level, attempt to un- analyze, understand, or appreciate crypto if you are dismissive of the social consumption good factor here, right? In the same way that what people got wrong about Wall Street bets was that it was a community. This in is like the Reddit group. In- yes, yeah. it was a community in addition to an investment club, and a lot of parts of crypto are about belonging. Or about the rejection of the other, right? Because that can work either that can work either way. Like it becomes this exclusive thing. I'm in this group, right. so, and you know, it's us against all the big the big timers or whatever. Or it's like we are the big timers, and we're keeping <laughs> the not big timers out. You know, so you know, one of the more famous NFT collectives is the one called Board Ape Yacht Club, and that's the one that all the celebrities like Snoop Dogg has one, Jimmy Fallon has one, um, Eminem I think bought one recently. And what does that do? It signals that you can drop several hundred thousand to several million dollars on a digital good. But that word signals is really important, right? Because it sort of reinforces a certain kind of belonging in the same way that there are certain kinds of stores that have no prices on anything in them because you have to ask if you have to ask how much this handbag costs, you, sh- you can't afford to be shopping there. And, and I think that that is a powerful 
mechanism. And I'm always, I try to pay attention always to like the underlying social dynamics of different things. And I remember when we were covering subprime, how much of that conversation was about the culture of house flipping, right? And like, yeah, this, to be clear, these are subprime mortgages, mortgages yes. that became this huge thing in the years before the, yeah. the housing-led um, financial There were crisis. entire TV shows built around the idea that like you too can get in on this thing and like buy a house and flip it and it's going to be great. And those social dynamics and those social effects are very powerful. And right now in crypto, you have a lot of people arguing very persuasively that this is your path to economic freedom. This is your path to wealth. This is your path to having a good time. And it's hard to counter that by saying, well, look at this chart <laughs> of why it might not be. <laughs> Here's the history of other financial bubbles and Indeed. how they ended. Right. Yeah. I mean, so there's two things there. One is that it goes back to the idea of when there's something new like this and you raise concerns based on like, the history of finance yeah. or the history of ideas where you say, hang on a minute, this shares some properties with previous financial bubbles. And then everybody's like, well, that's just because you don't get it. Totally. Right? Like, Didn't do enough reading. Understand, right. But the second point, Later. which I think is, is a crucial one, is inequality. OK, because one of the things that worries me about the socialization of this stuff, too, is that some people who are putting their money in are not the kind of people who can afford to lose it. Yeah. But there is this sort of like self-generating hype that you get caught up in and you think, well, oh, my God, you know, this person who I used to just despise just like made all their money in freaking crypto. Like, I got to get in on that. Right. And I have I have seen that happen in, in <laughs> networks that I am a part of. It's the fear of missing out is real. Yeah. And so I think that's a real danger when the hype sort of drives itself. And even if it's true that there is this consumption good aspect to it, it's like, well, not everybody's approaching it with that in mind. Some people might be approaching it with like, well, I need enough money for retirement. So I'm going to put a bunch of my money in crypto because it seems like a good thing to do. And so if the bottom falls out later on, it becomes a problem for them in a way that it may not be a problem for the people who are like, oh, I'm just here to like have fun on Top Shot or whatever. Right. I don't mean to pick on Top Shot, by the way. <laughs> like I'm not I just I keep bringing it up because like that's one that I'm you kind, under, you like a basketball. little bit familiar with and because I love basketball. Yes. Yeah. The problem of consumer protection is one that regulators in different countries are coming at, from my perspective, somewhat belatedly, given the risks. So the UK has been ahead of the curve on this insofar as they've been really aggressive about calling out everything from like the Kardashians for advertising crypto on their Instagram to, you know, companies that were using advertising on the tube, like the underground trains to, you know, they were talking about this was like insufficiently disclosing risks, et cetera, et cetera. And I thought that was super interesting because, again, I contrast it to the advertising that appeared in the Super Bowl where there were no disclaimers, right? There, there was no notion of... By the way, this thing, as of the time of airing this ad, is down more than 40% from its peak, which it reached merely months ago. And, you know, I thought you were going to say 40% from the start of the commercial to the end of the commercial, <laughs> which would have been great. Yeah, that I mean, that would be a different, I mean, not, it could, in crypto, that could actually happen. And so, you know, I think now regulators are starting to look at this from the perspective of, okay, consumer protection. There have been some very interesting challenges to existing crypto companies around misleading advertising or risks as it relates to like super high yielding 
financial products where, you know, some companies were like, if you if you put your money or you lend us your crypto, so like you buy crypto and you like lend it back to whatever, you'll get a thousand percent APY. Or, you know, we're we're like a bank account, except that they're not like a bank account because they are not backed by the FDIC in the US. And so if everything goes peer-shaped, you're not necessarily going to get any of your money back. And, you know, sure and good, but a lot of people aren't reading the fine print. And I think that, again, the idea of, well, the reason that they can offer this is because this is so new and so complex and so sophisticated is a good marketing message. And people are taking that as a marketing message, but it's obscuring so much of the underlying risk. Yeah, that's fascinating. Uh, I want to turn now to talking about crypto as a decentralizing technology in whatever part of this, you know, is appropriate to discuss. But in particular, I want to start by talking about crypto as a means of helping people collaborate or trying to get people to collaborate. Again, using algorithms, smart contracts, and so on, whatever it is that works. Okay, this is what's fascinating to me about this. A lot of times when people talk about the concept of decentralization, they sort of think that like you're talking about the government, right? Mm-hmm. And we're talking about like democracy yeah, where yeah, yeah. centralization sounds terrible, right? You take it to the extreme and you get like this tyrant or some tyrannical figure, okay? Versus decentralization in a democracy, it sounds great. Like you're voting. One vote and all per that person. Stuff. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. That kind of thing. But actually when it comes to like organizations, companies, institutions, nonprofits, whatever it might be. It's actually getting the right mix of centralization versus decentralization that you want. Because, again, too much centralization means you end up, you do end up with like some dictator-like figure and everybody else is afraid to do anything. But too much decentralization is like just chaos. Like it's <laughs> anarchy. Like nobody making any decisions. Nobody whose like guidance is sort of agreed on or approved, right? Or nobody who can say, I'm accountable for this and for getting it done and for not getting it done. And so my question is... When you look at crypto and the idea that it is often sort of positioned by its advocates, at least by its supporters, as being antithetical or antagonistic to like the big centralized, you know, tech companies of Web 2.0. Okay, crypto is often thought to be Web 3.0 or whatever. I know, but I don't know what I don't know what any (laughs) of this stuff means. As you can tell, I'm I'm just groping my way through here. Right. Uh, But like it's often positioned that way as antagonistic towards the big centralized companies of the past, right? Uh, And now you have crypto and you can use things like decentralized autonomous organizations or other things like that. We don't even have to get into like the technical explanation of this. My question is like, is it possible with the crypto tools that exist now to try to strike the right balance between decentralization and centralization? Or does it go too far in your estimation towards decentralization? I love the fact that you used companies as an example, because, again, I, I will I will use what you said about a, a, the decentral autonomous organization or a DAO, because there is a social element to it and there is a technical blockchain element to it. And the social element is it's like an organizing principle for a bunch of people who have theoretically shared goals. But there are dozens of organizing principles. You, you could have a co-op, you could have a LLP, you could have a um, a nonprofit organization, right? Like those are all organizing mechanisms for people with shared goals. You could have a you could have a, a political party, um, but a DAO, in theory, is the crypto native expression 
of that organizing principle and what makes it crypto-native is the notion that governance is decided by some sort of token, some sort of digital asset with either mostly direct democracy, so like one token, one vote, or some other kind of, you know, supermajority governing mechanism. By governance, you mean like how decisions are made? How decisions are made within that thing. And, uh, you know, DAOs sort of hit the mainstream conversation because they sort of turned into crypto's version of Kickstarter, (laughs) where a bunch of people were like, what if we bought a copy of the Constitution and raised, you know, $50 million. Um, It's a money-raising mechanism. A money-raising mechanism. Or, you know, what if we were to try to buy a sports team? Or what if we were trying to put private prisons out of business? Or what if we were to try to buy a relatively rare copy of Dune, the book, and, you know, poured a bunch of money into doing these things? But then they got stuck at the decision-making part of the thing, Either because even though every single person had a vote, none of those people would agree. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Right. Or you couldn't get to the majority that you needed to make that decision. Or some people would agree and then change their minds. And then there was no mechanism for solving that. And so when people talk about decentralization and crypto and how it's like a magical solve for all of this, I think they once again are forgetting that people are messy and chaotic and complicated (laughs) and that the entire history of humanity has been attempts to solve competing goals in resource-constrained environments. And the resource-constrained thing... That's economics right there. I mean, you know, (laughs) that's this kind of podcast. Um, But the resource-constrained thing in crypto is fascinating because people sort of, they really feel like there are no constraints, right? They're like, well, we could print more tokens or it's always going up or everybody's like super smart and cool and this is only going to end positively. And I do think it sometimes skews the analysis because sometimes economics is also about predicting what happens under conditions of scarcity as opposed to conditions of abundance. And I feel like so much of the discussion about decentralization in crypto right now assumes everything is going great for everyone and everybody's going to agree and nobody's going to be in competition with each other for anything. This might be kind of an esoteric reaction to what you just said, but is one of the constraints here or one of the limits, in other words, one of the, one of the resources that's necessary that doesn't exist in a decentralized autonomous organization or the ones that you described that ran into these problems, just competent decision makers, people who actually are good at making decisions? Or is the problem just that it's hard to design a DAO so that decisions are made by the right person and there is accountability by the right person? I think it's a combination of both, right? Like, Look, I, I firmly belong to the management class, so I'm not I'm not coming at this from like an objective perspective. I've been I've been an editor for years, um, but one of the things that you learn is that decision making under constraints is very hard, and it's why these kinds of systems exist. It's why we're always trying to like optimize a company or to think about shareholder governance or whatever. Like it's because decision making is hard. Um, And so if I remove it from the realm of economics and I remove it from the realm of crypto, I think fundamentally what crypto is struggling with in a lot of these cases is pure community management, right? It's like it's a bunch of unmoderated forums (laughs) and everyone's going wild. And there have there's no agreed upon rules. There's no agreed on principles. There's no deal breaker. There's no mechanism for accountability. 
And it's like reached that point after which, you know, it's not just like one annoying person or two annoying persons, it's like 500 people who disagree and it's chaos. And what do you do? And what what often happens in like the community management world, you just shut down the forum. <laughs> You're like, well, everyone. We'll you, go somewhere you else. Until it happens again. You had a good time. This subreddit is closed. Um, Harder to do when you've raised, you know, 25 or $50 million to try to do something. And so, you know, crypto, in a lot of cases, I think, does have this problem of abundance where you take problems that in an ideal scenario you would solve at a much smaller scale and figure out, but you're having to solve them in real time when so much more complexity is involved. Yeah, and I guess my thinking was that you know, the promise of crypto was that it would find a way to, in a sense, automate those important decisions. Mm-hmm. And like, just based on that reaction that you literally just had, like, I'm guessing that that just hasn't happened, at least not yet, because well, it involves like that human messiness. It involves that human messiness. But it also, I think, if you want nuance, automation is never the answer. And I think that there are certain things that you could definitely automate. Like, we want to be the highest bid on a piece of art. Sure. You can you can do that fairly programmatically. That's how eBay sniping works. <laughs> um, we want to make sure that the art we are buying conforms to certain principles that we have about equality or fairness, or we want to make sure that it's not it's not something where five seconds later we're going to find out that the artist is a Nazi. <laughs> like, yeah, right. You know, any, anytime you introduce social conditions into something or you want whatever you're doing to have a social effect, then you're going to need nuance. And nobody, no matter how brilliant or how rich, has figured out how to automate that entirely. You brought up earlier the fact that there are now like crypto funds to mm-hmm. invest in in crypto. And then of course that that would make it easy for somebody who has US dollars as opposed to crypto to just like invest in that fund and then all the technical stuff is handled by yep. the people who oversee the fund, right? Um but in terms of like centralization, you also have people buying and selling cryptocurrencies on exchanges, yeah. which provide like the service of, you know, if you lose like your long password or whatever, like there's all these stories of people who in the past would lose like their password and they lost, you know, a Bitcoin that would now be worth, I don't know how much. $48,000. Yeah, $48,000. And they bought like five when back when they were selling for 10 bucks or yeah. something. And now they can't find it. But if you use an exchange, it can provide the service of like helping you find your password or they can keep some of that information for you in the same way that a bank does it for your U.S. dollars. Mm -hmm. And it's just interesting to me that it was meant to be this decentralizing tool, but actually, like, people like some degree of centralization. Uh, This is one of the most interesting social problems, I think, in crypto. There's a phrase that you will sometimes hear, depending on where you are hanging out and who your friends are, (laughs) um, which is, you know, not your keys, not your crypto. And that reference to keys is what Cardiff is describing. It's like, what are your your authenticating mechanism to demonstrate ownership, right? And what you have just talked about, where you allow somebody else to manage your crypto, you have what you've done is you've allowed somebody else to have your keys. And so the like really die hard, especially from the Bitcoin community folks, hate this because as far as they're concerned, you now no longer really own that thing because somebody else has the ability to take it 
away from you, which is very much what we're seeing right now in the conversation around like sanctions or money laundering, where people who thought that their crypto was like untouchable and inviolable are now finding out that if the exchange knows who you are and the government knows who you are and those two lists match up, you might lose all access to that thing you thought you had. Um, But the flip side is people are very bad at remembering passwords (laughs) and they're very bad at remembering where they put things. And they're very bad at staying on top of every last detail of identity or authentication or whatever those things are. And so these kind of extremes are, again, like fundamentally intention because they each assume a perfect version of either individual responsibility or like complete societal functioning. There's something kind of interesting about the idea that leaving aside this business of the exchanges, crypto originally was meant to provide transparency and security because everybody on this blockchain could like see See, something at once. And yet, In the real world, when we talk about money laundering, when we talk about people using crypto to buy, I don't know, guns and things of that (laughs) nature, whatever, like like illicit sales of things, whether it's guns or drugs or something else, okay? Um, It seems to be, or at least it used to, facilitate that kind of transaction in a way that you wouldn't get caught. In other words, like there's... No transparency in that sense. A lot of that was what I, you know, what we alluded to in the beginning of obscurity through complexity. But there are a lot of people now who are very good at figuring out the complexity. And when they figure out the complexity, they can figure out who you are. And so, you know, you sort of have this arms race of what sometimes in computer, um, in information security, they'll call like the white hats versus the black hats. Right. Where the white hats are supposedly the ones trying to like do good in the world still by hacking. (laughs) And the black hats are the ones who are like, that money looks like mine. (laughs) I am taking it. Um, And you also have what I think is less well understood that some of these very, very, very smart people running these companies do this kind of analysis directly work for the feds. (laughs) Right. And so, you know, there is a cottage industry of organizations who deploy the kinds of matching algorithms that you might see when folks are trying to figure out like where cartels are moving money around or who will, there was very famously in just a couple of weeks ago, the case of two people who are accused by the Department of Justice of having laundered $3.6 billion worth of Bitcoin that came from another hack. They're not accused of stealing the money. But one of the ways they got found out was because they like bought a Walmart gift card Uh, Or they used some of the crypto to buy things that they then delivered to their home addresses. And so even though that Bitcoin itself wasn't necessarily traceable to one or more people, the conversions back into fiat currency were very much traceable, right? Because if it's like you call up a thing and you're like, hey, I have $100,000 worth of Bitcoin that I would like to convert into US dollars. Your bank isn't going to be like, sounds good. Yeah. <laughs> They're going to be like, and can you tell us where you got that from, right. please? Yeah. You know, so some of the lack of, um, the lack of obscurity. You can't just go underground and then surface and right. think it's going to be super the smooth. The surfacing right. is what gets you. So if you were able to live your life entirely in crypto, If you could do all of your transactions entirely in crypto, yes, there would be way more obscurity. But most people in most places, most of the time, are going to need a dollar or a yen or a euro or a sterling. And converting your crypto back into that is where folks get found out. 
Uh, I want to close by sort of exploring something that doesn't come naturally to me. Okay. <laughs> okay, I want to uh, know where this is going. Uh, a little bit of optimism, <laughs> okay. basically. So, I, no, I, I think you might have detected that I have what might genuinely be an overdone skepticism of crypto, right? And I want to be open to the possibility that that I'm wrong on that because I think that skepticism has also been just been a little bit of a hindrance to like better understanding mm-hmm. the crypto universe. Whatever you think of it, it is it is something that is very important now, and I want to understand it better. And by the way, this chat has been like incredibly illuminating, so thank you for that. All right, um, but I, I want to kind of explore two points here. The first is the idea that crypto really has diverted a lot of like very talented people yes. towards working on it. Okay. So people who in the past absolutely you know have very strong technical skills and might have been, who knows, working on other kinds of technologies or if we're all being honest, might Facebook. have just been in finance or something like that, right? Or would be working at Facebook. They're now working on crypto. And when you get a lot of smart people working on one thing, sometimes the specific thing they're working on isn't what turns out to be transformative, but it has offshoots that themselves turn out to be amazing. Just yeah. because you have all these smart people working on this technically advanced thing and it could lead to something great. It's the Pixar so, theory of creativity. Yeah, let me start there. Like, is that something that like you've given some thought to and, and thought, well, maybe this is something, something really great could come out of all this activity? I definitely think that crypto creates collisions that might not otherwise have happened. And as a person who has lived and benefited from some of those collisions, I do find that really fascinating, right? That you you are pairing people up who are mathematicians, people who are great at biosciences, people who might have a background in chemical engineering, and they're all in rooms. And right now they're in rooms trying to like make $2 billion speculating on Bitcoin. Um, but, you know, in the most optimistic version of myself, <laughs> would like to believe that there are other kinds of outputs that they are going to come up with, whether they are in the crypto world or otherwise. Yeah. The other possible point of optimism I want to talk about is just the idea that maybe crypto could evolve over time in such a way that it does have huge societal benefits at a scalable in a scalable way right in other words that right now we've seen some of the like problems with it you know but as you said we're only 13 years into it mm-hmm. right like people are still trying to fumble around to figure it out okay so yeah it's been super volatile you know, for the first 13 years of its existence, it's leading to all these kind of strange things that we haven't quite figured out the best Some way to chaotic use. chaotic environmental consequences. Exactly. There's, there's environmental consequences here. And so I want to just leave room, and even if it's just a couple of minutes on this podcast, uh, to explore that possibility that, like, maybe it could evolve in such a way that could be genuinely society societally beneficial. And I want to ask, like, what do you think, like, in that, like, ideal scenario, like, where could it go um, that could be, like, a really great, helpful, wonderful thing where we'll all look back and be like, hey, remember those two clowns on Cardiff's podcast? Remember Cardiff and Stacy when, like, they said all that skeptical stuff, right? Like, man, what an artifact from the time because look at how great it turned out to be. And we neither of us will have made any money on it because neither of us have any crypto investments. <laughs> yes. Um, when I am at my most kind of curious about humanity, 
I, I tend to look at what are people who are involved in like art and music and video game design, like how are they approaching this? And that's a world right now in which it's not 100% pro crypto by any means. There's actually a lot of criticism, some very grounded criticism that's coming from these folks. What I also see are artists finding other ways to earn a living because they're like, oh, I didn't know that I could actually benefit from secondary sales in my work. Like that was not an option that was available to me as a direct artist before or as a musician or, you know, some, I've, I saw an example of a project of somebody was able to kind of crowdfund their book using kind of NFTs. And I'm like, yeah, that is a very complicated way of doing a Kickstarter, but I can see. It could work. I, yeah, can I see want to explain this work. real quick. When you say secondary sales, this is, for example, the idea that let's say you're an artist and yep. you're kind of obscure at the beginning of your career. You like put together some NFTs that are affiliated with new works of your art. Yep. But at first, those NFTs don't sell for very sell much. Sell like $10. Yeah. But then let's say like you become super famous in a few years and now those NFTs are selling for a lot more, you can put in place a, a contract, smart contract. A smart contract <laughs> that says that you get a cut even of those secondary sales that happen after you sold the original exactly. NFT. So that if you become a big deal, you're profiting from the initial sale of the NFT. That that is like a very hopeful story, by the way, the one that you just told. That's a good example. I think, you know, and like that's the sort of stuff that I'm like, okay, that's interesting. I mean, one of the other things that blockchain is supposed to be really good at, again, there are circumstances in which you want immutability, right? Like compliance departments love the idea <laughs> that something cannot under any circumstances be forged or faked. And so you have people talking about like verifying where goods came from or making sure that a diamond was not a blood diamond because you can verify the provenance all the way back. Oh, lawyers got to love this. Lawyers love this. <laughs> and so, you know, I'm like, okay, cool. I'm so I'm I'm always on the lookout for examples in practice rather than in theory. But we're still at a stage where there are far more, quote unquote, pilot projects than there are fully realized examples of that. All right. Last question. Uh, as you can tell, I, I struggle to understand some of these concepts, but I want to get better at it. Um, what would you recommend that our listeners either read or maybe there's other podcasts that mm -hmm. they should listen to or uh, check out in some other medium um, that you'd recommend to, to really start getting a good handle on this? I would say, so first plug for Bloomberg, not just because I work there, but <laughs> uh, there's a series on Bloomberg called Quick Take, and you will find this both in like on the website, but there's also videos that have lots of really interesting explainers and come at crypto from different perspectives from a very accessible way. But I would say from a purely consumer perspective, because obviously like the Bloomberg reader we have a, a different definition of what where folks, folks might be starting. But from like a really consumer protective, um, The Verge and Motherboard Advice both do, I think, some of the most like incisive, interesting and well-written, slightly off the wall um, perspectives on crypto from lots of different angles. And so, you know, if you feel kind of intimidated by like, you're like, oh, my, I don't know if I understand financial markets enough to like read this Bloomberg story. Um, you probably do understand financial markets enough. But if you want an on-ramp, I think what the folks at Motherboard are doing, what the folks at The Verge are doing is like a really great place to start. And maybe follow Elon Musk on Twitter? No. <laughs> uh, Stacey Marie Ishmael, what a pleasure. A pleasure.
And that's all the time we have for today's show. If you want to see more of Bloomberg's coverage of crypto, we will put some links in the show notes for this episode. And Stacey, where can people find you online? Mostly on Twitter. Mostly on Twitter. Where at? At S underscore M underscore I for maximum confusion. Excellent. <laughs> the New Bazaar is a production of Bizarre Audio for me and Mrs. Forthright Transparency herself. That's Amy Keene. All right. Yes. Amy's embarrassed when I do this stuff, but it's just the truth in this case. Uh, Adrian Lilly is our excellent sound engineer. We haven't shouted her out in a while, but she's terrific and, uh, and makes us sound like way better than we sound in person, I think. And our music is by Scott Lane and DJ Harrison of Subfloor Studio. We also haven't singled those guys out in a while, but man, there's a reason that we're still using that amazing theme music. Uh, it's just so damn classy. Please follow or subscribe to The New Bazaar on your app of choice. And if you enjoyed today's show, leave us a review or tell a friend. That really is how people find out about the show. And that ensures that we can keep making it. If you want to get in touch, I'm on Twitter as at Cardiff Garcia. Or you can email us at hello at And we'll see you next week. <laughs>